if you've ever built a home or have had the privilege to uh, walk through that process, you know that it takes plans to construct a home. I spent uh, 10 years of my life uh, building new homes. I uh, was self-employed and built a bunch even while I went through seminary at Grace. Uh, myself and another man built them and then graduated from college initially and worked five years as a carpenter, a rough carpenter, and then spent the last few years, five years of my life as a finished carpenter. And I've built a lot of homes through the years. And what I know is that it takes a blueprint to build a home. And if you were to meet meet with a builder, or if you're doing a remodel job, you would have to have a blueprint as the blueprints I have here for Grace Community Church. Prior to this building being built on this ground, an architect who uh, happens even to be here, Myra Simpson was part of this, um, drew some drawings for this building. And if you were to kind of just leaf through the pages of this, you would see that it's, it's pretty comprehensive. It has heating uh, blueprints. It has second floor, first floor. It has foundation. It has uh, electrical wiring. It has plumbing. It shows you rise and elevation. It shows you a variety of things. And, and, and this actual blueprint is what this building that we're in was supposed to look like. And I remember the early stages of dreaming about this building, dreaming what it would look like and and how it would function. And we teamed up with DJ Construction, and they built this building. And so for many, when you see blueprints like this, the carpenters in this room, they're like, oh, I understand that. Oh, that's quarter-inch scale. Oh, that's an eighth-inch scale to a foot. I I understand. Yet for some of us, it's very, very difficult. But this is the blueprint for this building. And this building was blueprinted, and prior to the building being built, this is what it was supposed to look like. And this was the artist's rendition of what those plans would finally become. And they did. They became that. And since then, it was a 30,000 plus square foot building. We added on two years later another 30,000 square feet on the back and a second floor. But this was the initial drawings of our building here. These plans were put into place. So the architect knew that eventually these plans would become this, and there was a whole bunch of work in between getting that picture to become this picture and then in turn become this. The Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, we have a God who has created us to do good works. He has a blueprint. Like, this is the blueprint for Jim's life. This is the blueprint for Crystal's life. This is the blueprint for Chris and Heather's life. This is the blueprint of your life. So before you were even born, before you breathed your first breath, when you became a Christ follower, God knew who that was. He had your life blueprinted out to become this. Yet in order for that to become this, there's a whole bunch in between. But God promises this, that not only has he created us, he not only has he created us to do good works, but he's also created us to do works which he has prepared in advance for us. He laid the blueprint for how we would live out our lives. So in some sense, the things that you will become, 
the way you use your good deeds, your good works, your talents, and your ability have already been marked out, have already been drawn out, have already been printed out from the foundation of the world. And we are on this journey to become this that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the really good news is this. It's good news is that God wants you to get where God wants you to go more than you want to get where God wants you to go. Now, wrap your mind around that for a second. That's where God wants you to go. And he wants more than you want sometimes to get there. And he is the architect. He is the brains behind. He is the power behind you becoming that. And he wants it more than you want it sometimes. And he will do whatever it takes to get you there. Even when we decide, God, I'm not going there. See you later. I'm choosing to go in another direction. God, I'm going this way. God, I'm taking this choice. And from time to time, we get off the tracks. From time to time, we leave the blueprint and we say, no, I'm not. And God says, uh-uh. I've created you to become that so that you can do that. And I prepared it in advance far before the foundation of the world. Here's what that means practically. Before you woke up this morning. Before you got out of bed, and for some of you it was a difficult night because the Colts lost, but it was a great season. Great, it really was. Great season for Colt fans. You had two playoff games. The Redskins won three games this year. So keep it in perspective, okay? But before you arose this morning, God had already taken your day. God had already blueprinted out. God had already seen that you would come and worship. God had already known that you would encounter. God already knew you'd be sitting where you're sitting. God already knew what's going to happen. Before you even walked through your day, it ran through the hands of a sovereign God says, I got it under control. Now, is that good news for you today? Now, think through that for a second, what that means to us. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. You are unfinished, but not finished. (laughs) You need to wrap your mind around. You and I are unfinished, but not finished. He wants to do so much more. And I just say it this way. No matter where you're at in this journey, this sanctification journey, which means a journey trying to become more like Christ, it's not over because God says it's not over yet. And no matter what decisions you've made, no matter where you might be this morning, you think, I can't get out of this pit. It's too dark. It's too dreary. It's too much. God says, "Uh uh-uh. I've created you. I've blueprinted you to become this. And with my help and my divine assistance, we're getting there, brother. We're getting there, sister. Grab your Bibles. I'm going to show you how he does that. And turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Exodus chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus in the Old Testament. Hold your hand up. You need a Bible and our ushers will put one in your hand. We'd love for you to read along with us today. We are unfinished, but God isn't finished with us. Exodus chapter 1 will be a story about a man called Moses who had... God's divine appointment blueprint on his life, and it didn't seem like he would ever get here. 
It didn't seem like it was possible, but God said, no, I want it more than what you want, and we're going to make this happen. Stand with me. Let's read this incredible story of God's handiwork in this man's life. Genesis, or Exodus chapter 1, let's read verses 6 through 22. Please read with me out loud as we look at it together. Exodus 1, verses 6 to 22. Ready? Read. Now Joseph and all his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become too far numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. But they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of fields, work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Yeah, right. Verse 20. (laughs) Paraphrase. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but every girl live. You may have a seat. Moses was about to be born, and we're going to see that. He was about to be born during a time when Hebrew boys, when they were born, would be killed. So, if that's the case, was that God's plan for him to die? If that's the case, was it God's plan for him to die as a newborn? And if that's the case, then how would that shape his life? And it isn't the case. If God had something else in store, how would he bypass this death that was on his life so that he become what God had intended him to become and what God had intended him to do? Let me begin by saying this, unless you forget it today. This is very important beginning of the new year. Ephesians 2.10 tells us this, for we are God's. God's children. We are his. Sometimes... When you're all by yourself and you're lonely and you you wonder if you can go on, just pull away and say, guess what? I'm the son or daughter of the living God and that's enough. That is enough for us. And so it's a reminder to us today that even though this death sentence was on Moses' life, he was God's. And God says he wants more even than what we want to do through us and allow us to do more than we want it sometimes. So he is working through us around us, in us, and for us to get us to what he wants to do through us. So consider this truth if you can. No matter where you're at today, no matter how 
unfinished your life may seem, no matter how bleak it may appear, God has prepared in advance to do good works, even if you wonder how in the world will that ever happen. Knowing that truth, whatever God charted out for your life from the foundation of the world is out there for the taking in this sanctification journey. Now, it won't be easy. There will be some bumps. There will be some times when you fall. There will be some times where God just has to season you. Sometimes God has to put us in this, this bowl and, and put some seasoning salts in there and, 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 and pound us around a little bit and, and allow this to happen, that to happen, kind of so that when we come out of this, this, this sauce and we're seasoned well, we can become what he wants us to become. When I look back on my life and I think that where I'm at today, and you can do the same, there was a time that I would say, I would never imagine that I'm where I'm at today. I just, I couldn't picture that in my mind, that this is where I would be. In fact, if it was up to me, I wouldn't even be here today. Because I would have went in a different direction. I would have chosen differently. I would have bypassed pain. I would have bypassed hurt. I would have bypassed fractured relationships. I would have bypassed all those things that would have been difficult so that I could become what I wanted to become. And so we all have our stories. And, and for me, it's unique and yours is unique too. And so over this last week, I've been having a, had a chance, even as we went back east to visit family, to recall and reflect and to remember sitting with my siblings and my cousins and my uncles and going back to the church that we were saved in, called out of, thought we were going to serve in. Vote went the opposite way, thought that would be the place. We went back to this place, this building, Anna and I did on a Sunday night. Drove down the street. We just wanted to go back and say, I wanted to get a picture of the room that I was saved in, where Mabel Huff led me to the Lord. I wanted to walk in there and remember that this is what God had done and had planned from the foundation of the world. So we went on a Sunday night, and, we, and, and, and there, there was barely a light on. We opened the front door of this church that once was thriving, went in and walked to where the nursery was, and we noticed the light was on, and a lady was in there. I said, ma'am, my name is Jim Brown. I said, this is my wife, Ann, and I said, I, short and sweet, I was saved in this church. I, I ran a teen center in this church. Lots of kids got saved, and uh, I got called out of ministry in this church, and I just want to take some pictures so that I can keep the story alive, fresh in my mind. I said, can we take some pictures? And she said, well, my husband's in the back in the boiler room, and he's getting the heat ready for this evening. I said, can I go back? Can I walk back? I said, I know the building. I know it. I prayed through it. I've, I've, I've done all kinds of things in this building. Can I walk back? And she said, sure. So we walked back, and we met him, and the whole back of the building is no longer used. And I said, sir, can, I just want to go down to where this room that was in the far corner. And he said, we don't use that part of the building anymore. And I said, I just want to go back and take a picture and say, this is the room where I came to Christ. I just I want to go back and remember Mabel Huff sharing the good news with me. So I walked back in this room, and it was musty, just like I remembered. And, but it was empty, and it was dark, and there was no life, none at all. So I went to the corner of this room, and my wife snapped a picture. And then we walked to this room that was the teen center, the gymnasium. It's still the same paint that Ann and I and another couple painted on the wall almost 20 years ago. The hoops that are still on the wall that we bolted into the concrete. And, and, and I, I snapped a couple of pictures and I asked him, has, has, has anyone been? He said, it's been years since people have been in here. And it, it, it broke my heart. And as we're walking through this building, 
He says, hey, you should stay for the Sunday evening service. And he said, my son, and he preaches here. And you can see a father that was proud of his son. And I said, sir, we didn't even bring our Bibles and we're not dressed. He said, that's okay. I said, okay, we'll go. And we went into this auditorium that seats 400 people. And I remember just sitting in here and even the early days of my mom giving me the eye from the choir loft when I was laughing. I mean, it was just like, boy, this is deja vu. It's just like, and I remember the moments when I was the teen, youth, pastor, layperson there, thinking this would be the church I would serve in, and they voted not to hire a pastor. And so I walked in, and just floods of memories, just, just praising God. My heart was just boiling, or just flowing over with joy, and sat down, and seven people, including my wife, were in this room that night for a Sunday evening service. It broke my heart. And then I began to think, God, at this point in my life, when Ann and I were first married, this is what I thought. <laughs> this is where I knew. <laughs> this is what I, 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 I was made for, to, to serve here. And I remember leaving that meeting on a Sunday night when they voted not to bring us in. And I, and I remember going home, and we're just quietly in our vehicle, and Josh was just tiny and silently crying, thinking, God, I thought that was it, and not certain what the future would be, and all those memories. And then it occurred to me that that's what I thought, but God had something else in store. And I wonder what he has in store for you. And then so I began to backtrack, and we got married. I remember in the first, years, first year, 18 months of our marriage, we were trying to have a child. I remember one month, two months, three months, grew into seven months, eight months, nine months, 10 months, trying to have a baby, 11 months, 12 months, 13 months. And, and I remember thinking, we were praying, God, we want to have a baby, we want to have a baby, and wondering if we were able to have a child. Josh wasn't born yet, and just really wanting to. And some of you have been there, and some of you are still waiting. And praise God, this week we heard that the Shivelys are pregnant. And I remember thinking, God, that's what I want. I remember we were invited to, to sit in our pastor's presence, and he was an interim pastor. His name was Pastor White. He said, hey, how can I pray for you? I said, well, Pastor, my wife and I would really like to have a child, but we're doing all the right stuff, but it's it's not happening. (laughs) It's not a problem. I'll never forget when Pastor White prayed. He he prayed over us, and, and I remember within a month's time, my son Josh was conceived and was was born nine months later. Difficult. As I look back on my life and I see all these moments when I thought this and I thought that, and I, and the, and, but God had something. God, from the foundation of the world, had blueprinted out my life. And, and so I have a conversation with my sisters, and it was like, they sat with my older sister, Kim. She's five years older than me, and we're in her house, and I have a conversation. She says, Jimmy, I just can't believe what God has done. She says, I remember you. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. I remember you. <laughs> and if it had been up to me, I would have been a faithful person following Christ. I, I was pretty committed as a, a high school student. But it wouldn't be this. But along the way, God has pushed, he's bumped, he's prodded, and he's caused us to step out in faith. And he's brought us to this today. Moses realizes this later. He doesn't realize this now. His mom doesn't realize it now. But here's all this to say this. When you're God's child, he's got a great plan in store for you. When you are God's daughter, when you are God's son, 
It might seem like there's a death sentence on your birth, but if God has foreordained from the foundation of the world for you to be this, now listen, there's no demon in hell that will stop it. There won't be. Death was imminent for Moses, and he knew that. But he was loved by God. You know, sometimes you just need to hear this, beginning this new year. Because we're God's children, Jesus loves us, and you're his. Sometimes you need to hear that. It's like when you're all by yourself, maybe you're single, and your house is quiet, and you go home, and they tell you something. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he has a plan marked out for your life that he is working over time to make it happen for you. God loves us as we are, not as we ought to be, because we are never going to be as we ought to be either. And sometimes if we just look at ourselves, why would God love me because I'm so sinful? Why would God love me after I did that? Why would God love me when I got off his tracks? Why would God want to do that for me? Why would God allow that to happen when I've done this and done that? Because he's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. He's a kind God. And it's kindness that leads us to repentance. And sometimes we just need to know that when he looks at you, when he looks at me, he doesn't see us as the mess that we are in. He sees us covered with Jesus' righteousness. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see that armpit of sin. He doesn't see that moment when, when it's the worst moment of your life. He looks at you. You and I are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm going to create you and build you and allow you to do the works that I prayed in advance for you to do. So for Moses... Look at chapter 2. What did he have in store for him? Chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds, not in the water, as you see in some of the Disney films, but in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance, Moses' sister, to see what would happen to him. So the odds are stacked against him, but he's loved by God. His mom is also very wise here. Notice, she places him in a basket and puts it in the reeds near the Nile. Why? Because regularly she had seen that Pharaoh's daughter had bathed there. And so a part of her heart as a mom's is, she hid him for three months and she knew that they were going to find him. So she probably was praying out to God, God, how can I save my son? And she probably thought, if I put him near the reeds, then another woman will see him. And she certainly wouldn't kill a baby, would she? So she strategically places Moses in the reeds near the Nile where Pharaoh's daughter regularly bathed. She was willing to do whatever she could too. So let me just remind you of this. This journey from here to here doesn't happen all by itself. It's not like God says, okay, grab your Lay's potato chips, grab a Jimmy John's number 11, grab a remote control and set and watch playoffs until you die. No, there's responsibility. It'd be fun though. There's responsibility for us. 
There's responsibility. We have to do what we're capable of doing. And God has created us to do good work. God has given us a will that we have a part in his, his elective will, his will that's been defined since the foundation of the world. She did what she could do, but she also knew that God had to do something far more than she could do. She knew she was God's. And even though the odds were stacked against her, she wasn't giving up. I love meeting people like that. I love walking into someone, when it, you look at it in the physical, you think, man, it just seems like you don't have a fighting chance. But they believe that God is able. I ran into a story this week that kind of captures that well. Listen to this story. It says, I passed a sandlot yesterday. Some kids were playing ball. I strolled along the third baseline with the fielder's call. Say, what's the score, I ask. He yelled to beat the stuffing. There's no one out, the bases are full. They're winning 42 to nothing. You're getting beat, aren't you, my friend? And then in no time flat, he answered, no, sir, not as yet. Our side hasn't been to bat either. (laughs) Now, that's someone that knows that there's still hope. And Moses, the odds are stacked against him. He's supposed to die. Every Hebrew boy that was born is supposed to die. And so if a Hebrew boy is found, he's dead. But God, but God had blueprinted from the beginning. Even though man says you're dead, God said, ah, I got another plan. Look at the plan. Look what it says in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him, just like a mom thought would happen. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now picture this. It's Moses. Moses' sister's there. Pharaoh's daughter's there. Moses is there, crying. The only time in Scripture that says a baby is crying, for those of you who like to know those kind of things. Babies cry more than that, by the way. But here's Moses is there. His sister, Pharaoh's daughter, And now she asked, should I go and get someone to nurse this baby? She asked Pharaoh's daughter that question. Look what happens next. Then verse 7. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. Now look, look, come on. This is just only God. So the girl went And God, whose mothers? The baby Moses' mother, for crying out loud. Now think about it. Now you read that. Maybe that doesn't do what it does for me. You see, God had marked out from the beginning, boy, you're going to live. And so he says, go. She says, go get the mother. Look what happens next. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you to do so. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. By the way, that's Moses' mother nursing him. 
When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, in case you missed these little incredible divine details in your sleep this morning after staying up late, he's supposed to die. Now his mom is getting paid so he can live. Now, think about that. She gets paid to nurse him. Now, this is a poor Israelite woman who's being oppressed by Egyptians, who all around her sees death. Baby boy dead. Baby boy dead. Baby boy dead. Baby Israelite boy dead. Baby boy dead. Grieving moms all around. She gets to take her Hebrew child amidst the death, hold him in her hands and nurse him to help and not to get money paid to do it. Only God can do that. Imagine what he can do for you. You see, he has this blueprint in mind. And there's this track that we're supposed to run on so that we can do the things that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Why would God do that? Why would he do it for Moses? Because we're his kids. You know, sometimes we lose sight of that. We, we, we live too much earthly. And we look at my mom, I look at my dad, who I love dearly. I had a great walk with my mom this this. Over New Year's, it was just awesome. Her mind was clear, and I got it on videotape on my iPhone. Like, 40 seconds of her walking and talking to my son Josh, it's priceless to me. But even more than the love that's there between a mother and a son, we got a God that loves us that says, I am going to make sure this happens. And when God says it, there's not a demon in hell that'll stop that. You see... Even if your life seems to be condemned, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you got no trespassing signs posted in the lawn of your life. The master carpenter's about to come knocking at your door and give you a makeover this year if you'll just let him. So Moses leaves home. Mom nurses him. Now, you might say, oh, that's horrible. He had to leave home. What mom alive would not want her son to get the best education there is? What mom alive wouldn't like for her son to live in the palace? What mom alive wouldn't like to see her son dressed in the best robes of Egypt? What mom alive wouldn't like to see her son protected? What mom alive wouldn't like to see her son become royalty? And that's exactly what her mom, this mom did when she handed him off to the Egyptians. And he lived in royalty. And by the way, he was supposed to die. So here you have it. Now this might not just compute with you. Egyptian home, Hebrew baby, growing up in the Egyptian palace. And listen, by the way, there was no son in the palace that was available that could become king if that's what would happen in Egypt. So even not only was he being cared for, he was next in line to be the king of Egypt. That's cool. Not that he would be, but he was next in line, a Hebrew. Okay, you don't get that like I do, but that's just awesome. (laughs) You see, we are unfinished, but not finished because he's not finished with us. We are created to do good works, Ephesians chapter 2 says. I get excited about this because I'm not alone in this journey that I'm on, and nor are you. It might seem like there's a bump in the road right now. Maybe you're in a transition time. It's like... 
God, this is what I, I feel like that you have for me. And maybe you're in a holding pattern. Listen to me. If that's what God wants, there will be a day when the desires of your heart that line up with God will come to fruition and you'll say, look what God did. You got to believe that this year. You got to believe that. I love what Psalm 139, 16 says. It says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. They were all written in the book. On this day, that will happen. And on that day, you're going to do this. And this is what it's going to look like. And and it's all written. And sooner or later, it's going to come to fruition. God has our days marked out. So before you got out of bed, your day was marked out by God. For you see, life matters to God as much and more than what it matters to you. We're kind of under repair. We're under construction regularly. Sometimes a house needs to, to have a repair. Sometimes it needs to, to be, you have to have a, a builder come in and, and, and change something because it's worn out. And all along the way, God is repairing us. God is making us stronger. God is rebuilding us. God is preparing us. God is making this thing happen in our lives. I mean, it happens even in a home. Many of you probably experienced that with your furnaces. You know, our furnace went haywire this week and was able to open it up and, and, and fix it and Josh's trooper went down and, and from an alternator to the, the hood release cable. Have you ever tried to replace that on a Suzu trooper? It's like the cable. It's like you order the cable. First, you got to get it from a Suzu, which takes you 49 years to get it. And, and once you get it, it, it comes to your house. And, and then you need one of those wrenches like this. Have you ever tried to, like, yeah, get up in there and just turn it like 20,000 times and you can get to it. So replace that. You know, it was just one of those weeks. Like it needed a garbage disposal and put some potato skins in there, and they got all jammed back up in the pipes and the trap. And so the boys and I are tearing it out. We got water dropping. We we fix. It's kind of like us. Sometimes we we need repaired. And I mean, it was just one of those weeks where where those things were happening. Sometimes it's one of those weeks for us. But listen, he puts us back. The carpenter comes in. He gets us back on our feet and says, "That's where you're going." And God regularly does that for us. Look what he does for Moses. Now, you would think after Moses is in the palace that it would be good. So for chapter 2 and verse 11, look what it says. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now, this is 40 years later. Looking this way, I love how the author says, in that way, and seeing no one, it's kind of like anyone around, you know, it's like, make sure no one's looking. Look what he does. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, that's a good plan, isn't it? If you're going to kill someone, just put him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Now, stop and pause for a second. God, from the beginning of time, has this plan blueprinted out for your life, in Moses' life. And so Moses is on this journey trying to, to, to create and trying to, to do these works that God has planned out ahead of time. Yet every once in a while, we kind of step off the tracks with sin. And so here's the case. Moses goes out and he kills someone. Now, I don't see that in God's plan. And if you do, um, we need to talk later. That wasn't in God's plan. And so he steps off the tracks. Then he tries to cover it up by hiding it. And then it says this 
in verse 14. After the verse 13, the next day he went and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Have you ever been found out with your sin and you don't like it? And by the way, Moses would write later in Numbers 32 or 23, 32, or 32, 23, your sins will find you out. Because he knew firsthand that they did. So he goes out and kills someone. Seems like it's over now, doesn't it? Well, so much for a murderer doing great things for God. You see, before the foundation of the world, God had prepared in advance for Moses. Now think about this to be the leader of the Israelite people, to take them out of slavery and to take them into the promised land. It's like he marked him out. Yeah, you, you could see it back here. Like, wow, he spared his life. Like, he should be dead. He got raised in an Egyptian palace, highly educated. He probably was a great leader. He was like, God, I see it. No man, 40 years of eating good, being educated, being protected. He's ready to lead. And as soon after that 40 years, he goes out, whoop, falls off the tracks. You could easily say he's finished. Because God could never use a murderer, could he? But God had something else in store for him. In fact, look what it says in verse 15. It says this, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to what? Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Okay, just, I mean, you, you can do the math with me. He had a death sentence here before he was born. Now he's got a death sentence again. Pharaoh's trying to kill him twice. You think, dude, you're done. Why would God rescue him now? Seriously, why? Like, I mean, why would he allow, not allow Pharaoh to come in and take a slap? I mean, he's a murderer. Death sentence when he was a baby. Death sentence when he was 40. But God said, guess what? This is what I created you to do. And how in the world do we get from there to here when we're over here? Is it possible for us to be brought on the tracks that God wants us to run on even in our very worst moment? Absolutely yes. Isn't that why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 20, he says, this is paraphrase, he says, Paul says, he says, I do the things that I don't want to do and the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do them either. I mean, it's like he does what he shouldn't do. He sins. It's like it's just, this is Paul. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. It's like, he says, why is it that daily I want to sin? I want to do the things I'm not supposed to do. And why is it the things I'm supposed to do I don't do? Because, listen to me, Grace Community, we have this old sin nature in us that's warring against this new nature. And we have to regularly battle and win that battle, not on our own, by God's power. Moses finds himself spinning away from what God should have done in his life. But what happens? Look, God's not done with him. Verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to the water the father's flock. I kind of like this passage, by the way. Priest, let me just say a pastor had seven daughters. You know, he's going to be taking care of these daughters. And he's walking down, and he, they need some water, and he's gone to the watering hole. Verse 17. Then it says that some shepherds came along and drove them away. In other words, get out of here, girls. we got to feed our own cattle. But Moses got up and came to their rescue. Now, pause here, dudes. Let me just pause. Single dudes. Just, just a little sidebar. 
If you see seven women that are thirsty, give them water to drink. There's some great dating advice for you. Look what happens. But Moses got up and came to their rescue. Look what happens. When the girls, all seven of them, returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? In other words, how did you do that so quickly? Now picture, Moses did it. Look what happens next. They answered, There was this Egyptian who's really in Hebrew who was supposed to die twice, who murdered someone who's been in obscurity for like, or going to be for 40 years. He came and rescued us. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Then Ruel, the father, who says, hey, I like a man that'll take care of my daughters. He knows nothing about Moses other than he did a good deed. Look what it says. Why did you leave him there? In other words, hey, You seven gals are single. This sounds like a good dude. Invite him to have something to eat. So they went out. Hey, Mo, come on home. My daddy likes you. Come and get something to eat. Now, another word of advice for single dudes. If you got seven single gals inviting you to their father's house, go eat supper, okay? (laughs) Look what happens. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Moses is supposed to die. Moses lives 40 years in the Egyptian palace. Moses sees his own Hebrew getting beat up by Egyptian. Moses kills Egyptian. Moses buries in sand. Moses runs. He's thirsty. He goes to the well and starts drinking water. This feels better. Moses looks up and sees seven beautiful women. Moses helps seven beautiful women. (laughs) Moses gets invited to seven beautiful women's house. As Moses sets his table with seven beautiful women and daddy, daddy says, hey, you want to get married? Well, sure. Moses marries one of the daughters of the seven women. You know what happens next with Moses? Moses has a baby. Moses, after all that, Can you start to see that God is working? God is somehow saying, hey, listen, I've created you for this. And so for the next 40 years of his life, Moses is setting in obscurity. Look what happens in verse 17. Some shepherds, or verse 20, 21. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreigner land. In his mind, he thought he would end his life as a foreigner in a foreigner's land. In his mind, this was good enough. In his mind, this is all he deserved. In his mind, it wasn't getting any better in this. In his mind, this is as good as it was possible. Listen, but in God's mind, God said, "Uh uh-uh, boy. You're going back to my people and your people, and you're going to lead three million people. Moses, uh uh-uh, he was thinking, this is as good. Being a foreigner in a foreign's land, I have beautiful wife and child, I die here. But God had him prepared to do greater works. Look what it says in verse 23. During the long period, the king of Egypt died. The Egyptians groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of the slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now think about this. Sometimes you and I settle for less because we think God would never 
Let us rise above this because we have failed him in such a miserable way. Listen, there is no sin that God's grace can't cover. You've got to get over that. I don't care what some righteous, judgmental Christian wants to tell you. There is no sin that Jesus didn't die on the cross for. There is nothing that Jesus didn't die and be resurrected to redeem. There is no way that Satan can ever stop you being used if God had in mind for you to be used. God has already prepared the way for us. You see, we are God's. We've been created to do good works. And God has prepared the way and the works for us to do. So somehow we get from there to there, even though the path, the sanctification journey is kind of like this. Paul says, I do the things I wish I wouldn't do, and the things I wish I would do, I don't do. Listen, we're human beings, but there's a thing called forgiveness and confession of sin that gets us back on track. So what happens? Look at Ephesians or Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. I love this line. So Moses thought, you would think too, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, hey, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Look at verse seven. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey called Goshen. Oh, and the home of the, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Gigabites, Hivites, and Jebusites, all the ites. And then it says this, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you, Moses. Yeah, you, Moses, who've been in obscurity for another 40 years of your life, to Pharaoh, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You're sending me? Now think about it. First 40 years of his life, living in the Egyptian palace. Second 40 years of his life, happy, living in obscurity. He was a foreigner in a foreigner land. But God, but God, but God had this in store for him. And so he goes after him. He says, hey, Mo, um, before the foundation of the world, by the way, before you ended up on the now river, I just want to let you know, yeah, let me show you, you were created to look like this. And but for Moses, he couldn't see that because he was living in guilt and this judgment of people and shame. But Jesus took that to the cross and died for it. Sometimes we just need to shake it off of us because we're gods and we've been created to do good works good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do, just just go do them. So he comes to him, and Moses, look at his first response. Verse 9, or verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, I'm not doing it. His first chance of leadership, he gets, he fumbles it. It's like, (laughs) he's supposed to lead three million people? Come on, God, you got to find someone else. 
The Jim Brown paraphrase for this time in his life would be this. Moses would say, I can't do that, God. I have too much baggage from my past, too many episodes. And he was looking at his sin instead of looking at his God and the plan that his God had on his life. Later on in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, God says, I want you to speak. And Moses once again fumbles this leadership opportunity. He's got a chance to lead three million people, be empowered by God. And he fumbles this. I can't talk when I speak. My knees shake and I'm not eloquent. Can I have someone else talk? Can you send someone else? He constantly tried to shift it away. He didn't want to do it. But listen to me. God wanted him to do it and he wants it more than we want to do it. But he fumbled that, and he hands it off to Aaron, by the way, which would be another message for another time. He hands it to Aaron, and we know who Aaron is, don't we? While Moses was up on the mount talking to God, he was like the Discovery Channel's first gold rush recipient. I mean, making golden calves. The bottom line is this. Moses spends 40 years of his life in the Egyptian palace getting trained for what God intended. Moses spends 40 years of his life in a foreign land thinking this is where I'll end up. And Moses spends 40 years of his life doing what God made him to do. Lead his people. Three million Israelites were led by a man that had a death sentence as a baby, a man that had a death sentence on his life because he was a murderer at, 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 at 40 years old, a man who was living in obscurity and wanted to be a foreigner, didn't he have a passport anymore, 80 years old, took him and used him to lead his people because he had it marked out from the beginning. Oh, church, if you can get a hold of that this year. You see... No matter where you're at, I can say this in me. I'm not finished. (laughs) Not on my power, not by my strength, but by his power, I will do great things and give him more glory. Oh, God, help us today. I pray that in this new year, that we would come to grips with that you are working that before the foundation of the world that you have this plan for us and that we're not finished, it's not over. And that God, you are the hero behind this story. Lord, that often gets lost and we apologize for that. We look at this and we say, look at Moses. No, we look at God and say, God, you're the hero of every story. Help us, God, to lift you up this year and to acknowledge you as the hero and to know that with you, God, Anything is possible, and we're not finished. It's not over. 2014 is the year that we do, God, what you've created us to do, and we give you the glory because you, God, are great. In Jesus' name, amen.